Welcome to the Words Work at Microsoft podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Bost and Amy King. On this pod, we'll be chatting about how Microsoft culture has evolved, starting with the way we talk. In each episode, we'll interview someone within the Microsoft writing community, giving you an inside look at how we approach our work, and hopefully offering up a heavy dose of tips and tricks along the way. I'm your host, Amy King, and I'm a UX writer in the Office 365 Design Studio here at Microsoft. And with me is my co-host, Jen. Hello, I'm Jen Bost, and I'm a writer and creative strategist in the Office 365 Design Studio. And today we're talking with Jonathan Foster, whose career spans film, television, fine wines, and now nine years of crafting words for Microsoft. He's even made time to self-publish a novel all of which led him to master the helm of Microsoft Cortana's editorial team. Jonathan brings a background of storytelling and marketing to the content experience team, and today we're going to find out what it takes to create and nourish an AI personality within a tech giant. Thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. Anything you'd like to add? No, no. uh, Let's jump in. You you pretty much summarized my role here, so. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, thank you. I yeah. can try. <laughs> okay, <laughs> perfect. So we're going to start with our traditional silly, silly question to break the proverbial ice. So, Jonathan, who is your favorite fictional AI character? First, I want to say, because you guys gave me a tip on what the silly question was going to be, I was expecting something much sillier. <laughs> Because this is actually a very important question, really. I mean, I get asked this quite a bit, and it varies. And 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 it's funny because now uh, I would say my answer is Joshua. You guys remember Joshua, maybe from the movie War Games? Do you remember this movie? Oh yeah, it's an old oh, yes, with yeah, Matthew yeah. Roderick. That's oh, right, God. and uh, yes. and he is officially an AI. The cool thing about the movie is the movie is actually about nuclear war. And they use yeah. this AI as kind of a secondary character. Uh, a lot of times that's what happens. I mean, pretty much there are always secondary characters or foils. But the great thing about uh, this particular AI is it's kind of a, the, the, the problem with the way that AI and robots are depicted in film is as a dramatic prop. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. how is a perfect example of this nemesis that's created? And then, of course, the underlying theme of fear of fear of technology, fear of progression, fear of uh, like it goes back to like if you think of Luddites from around the Industrial Revolution who are turning over manufacturing tools and whatnot and burning down buildings. It's a similar theme. And so I always have a problem with the fact that for dramatic purposes, AI is always de- depicted in this way. But in, in, in this movie, Joshua is very innocent. It's totally an innocent AI, which is what AI really is. Uh, someone, uh, someone said that um, recently that uh, uh, machine, learning, machine learning algorithms don't like it when we personify them which is hilariously <laughs> ironic. That came from Microsoft research, from the bowels oh. of those intelligent brains. But uh, the, the whole point is we're constantly <laughs> imbuing this personification into these, this technology, and that's part of this thing that I'll talk about today. But we do so, and then dramatically we kind of leverage that and some of our, some of our uh, misgivings around that idea. But Joshua... He, he ends the movie concluding with this really piece of wisdom, this large piece of wisdom, where he says, a strange game, the only winning move is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? So so he's just kind of like, he plays he plays this <laughs> nuclear, thermonuclear war game that brings the Russians into it. You know, we have this near nuclear catastrophe. Uh, innocently, he, he would just as soon play chess. In fact, there's a moment in the, in the uh, movie where he tries to play chess, but uh, Matthew Broderick's character says, no, no, let's play thermonuclear war because they have to try to figure out what's going on. So uh, I like I like Joshua currently because he's <laughs> truly an innocent, just, just purely naive AI. Isn't the voice artist that did Joshua also the voice artist that uh, did Kit from uh, Knight Rider? Is it really? Well, I'll have to look. Oh, get I don't know. I up. <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, I think that that they use the same voice for all the '80s, like AI. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know that that 
calm, gentlemanly, you know, uh, you know, authoritative, but not overly authoritative, you know, trustworthy. Um, That's very important, isn't it? The the aspects, the richness of the voice that's actually coming from, uh, from the personality, but that's yeah. Mm, Joshua. That's a great movie. (laughs) Nice. Well, Jen, what about you? I'm going to stick with the 80s theme, and I'm going to date myself here. But um, I think that the personality, the AI personality that stood out most to me when I was a kid was, um, I remember the first time I saw him on, was on a Coca-Cola commercial, but it was Max Headroom. I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. know who Max Headroom is. Yeah. Oh, definitely. He, <laughs> yeah, he's hilarious. He was like <laughs> exactly. And I guess that's why I thought this was a silly question, because I immediately was thinking of Max Headroom. Um, so for those who haven't any idea who Max Headroom is, he was basically this like British artificial intelligence who was supposed to be like the first computer-generated TV host. Uh, and although it was a British TV show, uh, and then Coca-Cola created a partnership, and that's why I saw him as an American kid on uh, TV commercials, but Max actually had an American accent, and I think that was uh, on purpose. He was, like, doing a satire on those super cheesy, upbeat, somewhat arrogant TV hosts that were popular in American uh, culture at the time, but really I think it was uh, his satirical side, that dry, witty British sense of humor that I like so much. He, he was entertaining. So that's yeah, and they, they had an grabbed my attention. They had an interesting thing that they did back then, where there was actually a live actor, and they had the this technology that at the time was kind of mind blowing because it could create this animation that looked like it was talking while this actor was improvising live with someone. So, so, so yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't like pre recorded. It was it was actually live, and the guy was hilarious. Yeah, I, 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 I saw. He did an interview with uh, David Letterman on The Tonight Show. Um, there you go, yeah. Yeah, and so that, yeah, but that was like the styling too, as they had this um, this graphical, computer-generated graphics on the background that were very 80s, like, you know, laser beam kind of things. And then he would kind of glitch, and they did some um, electronic uh, uh, distortion of his voice and stuff, and he'd have moments of, like, high-pitched, tone and then back down again and it all just kind of added to the the charm and whimsy of uh you know computer generated before you know computers were a household thing and way before mobile phones and yeah you know it's just funny to see like how history painted the future but yeah it it continues to actually right so yeah for sure for sure well that goes back to that whole uh humans feeling irreverent and how we'll technology and, and society fit in, but that's a deeper question. Maybe we'll have time to dig into that later. Uh, Amy, who is your favorite AI? Um, fictional, I had to have a conversation with my roommate about it because I couldn't decide, and then we started talking about the video game Portal. And oh, yeah. In, in Portal, you are uh, being tested by this AI called Gladys, and um, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, she has great, she has great um, quotes. And one of my favorite is when you first wake up, she's like, we hope your brief detention in the relaxation vault has been a pleasant one. And that made me (laughs) laugh so hard because then I started using that as an example of, you know, your messaging can change simply by changing a word in your sentence. And so from being relaxing, we're calling it detention instead of rest or whatever. And so I've used that in examples before when trying to convince people to let me like, you know, we got to go this way. Let's let's take the tone this way with our writing <laughs> and stuff. So I would have to say it's Gladys. Also, I just enjoy the the slightly sarcastic the fact that a AI could have sarcasm makes me happy. I think so. Yeah. Well, does we've Glad- talked about this, Amy. It, is Glad- <laughs> does Gladys? I don't know. I don't know Portal enough to know. Excuse me. I, I couldn't tell uh, if I was interrupting. So I'm going to say right now, if I interrupt, please forgive me because it's hard to tell <laughs> sometimes on this this call. So please forgive me. It's always and now that I've been, now that I've completely successfully interrupted. Was Gladys the one that uh, offered the promise of cake? You know, I haven't haven't finished the game. Um, Okay, sorry. I I hope I didn't spoil it. (laughs) That's okay. I I spoiled Final Fantasy for myself because I was trying to be clever and I was searching for a meme. And then I found out one of my favorite characters dies in the middle of a video game. I was like, 
Okay, well, I'm just going to accept this is what happens when you wait 20 years to play a video game. And right. so I just accept. I I think so. That sounds accurate. Yeah, she offers okay. cake after you Something, complete I, Somebody in that game does. It's just classic, yeah. right? I'm, I'm not a gamer, so everybody's probably in the listening audience is rolling their eyes at me going, oh, God, this guy doesn't know that. That's okay. I said well, that I took a 20-year hiatus because when I was five, I was playing on the original Nintendo, and then I stopped playing at the age of, like, eight, and then I didn't start playing again until I was 28, and my friends built me a PC computer so I could game with them, and that's when I finally started playing video games again. And so I'm, like, on this huge backlog. They keep sending me different games. Oh, you'll like this. You'll like this. You'll like this. So I have, like, 50 games to play and slowly, slowly making my way through them. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's it's okay to say full disclosure, Amy, because I learned this about you that you were roommates with one of my original writers on the team, and she yes. was always my go-to person for any gaming question. So you're in good hands. Yes, August. <laughs> yes. August. No, she's she's been a Brilliant great steward mind. of my gaming and writing life here at Microsoft. So Well, and, and she's she's a good example, along with a lot of people who I probably won't be able to name, but since we're talking about August, a good example of how great it is to work at Microsoft and be exposed to such wonderful, brilliant people, because she is just astoundingly smart and funny and uh, on top of culture and sensitive and all these wonderful things. And we find them throughout this discipline here at Microsoft. And it's one of the things that, uh, that I really, really makes it super easy to come to work every day is because you're surrounded with people like Mike August and others on my team and other people that I've known in various pockets of Microsoft that I've worked at. So um, just, just a little plug there for, for Microsoft, but mainly just if August hears this, I want her to know that even though she's no longer on my team, she's now in voice design, which is an, a very important part of the technology, uh, conversational design in, in, in the natural language interaction. She's, she plays a key role now uh, and went from a writer to a voice designer, um, which, is, which is important for this, this podcast to know that even if you come in as a writer, you can develop skills in other ways. Uh, uh, and create your own you discipline, imagine. really. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it's expanding and it's an exciting time to actually be in this discipline. So I couldn't yeah, agree more. True. I agree too. I've been very blessed to work with some amazing people. I yep. love so this is totally unbeknownst to us. Um, Jonathan, you started us off with a movie-related AI. I took it down to TV and uh, Amy covered us on games. So obviously <laughs> our society is super obsessed with AI That's right. uh, and it's crazy yeah. it's crazy to see it's finally in our lives not played out on a on a tv screen um right so let's you know speaking of making it real let's jump in and talk about your work uh how long have yeah. you been managing Cortana's editorial team and how did you go about building that team out like what attributes were you looking for in your writers kind of yeah. connecting back up to uh <laughs> August. yeah yeah right because I, I will mention her um, so there was a reorganization about four years ago. Um, I was an Xbox. We just shipped Xbox One. And uh, I was asked to lead this top secret project called Cortana. That was originally uh, its code name. Um, Cortana is a very well-known AI in uh, the game Halo. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. uh we uh, leveraged that as a code name and then decided that was a good name for various reasons. Um, uh, one being that it had the right syllables for the chip requirement for trigger phrases. So we say, uh, hey, Cortana, and uh, what happens is uh, she wakes up, right? So Cortana fit that as, as well. Um, are you hearing that chatter in the background? I hope not. Because every time I say, hey, Cortana, she wakes up she, and starts talking say, you be in my office. She's that. like, hello. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, um, which is a good thing. We want her to do that. Um, but anyway, so I was tapped on the shoulder, shoulder to create the writing team. And that, at that time, it was Deborah Harrison, who was deeply embedded in the team design and PM engineering. 
that uh, was beginning to consider the well, the beginnings of, of what Cortana was. And so early on, there was a decision to go with a personality. At the time, Google now did not have a personality. At least that was their claim. Um, and then Apple, on the other hand, had Siri. They kind of started the whole uh, interactive AI digital assistant model with a very defined personality. And so we, after much consideration, decided to go with personality. I can explain the reasons for that. Uh, short, you know, brief elevator pitch is based on um, research. We realized a lot of things where personality could be a positive thing. And then subsequently, even though for many years Google was saying, we're not going to do personality, being human is hard, they now have a really, really awesome team building out the personality for Google Assistant, um, led by some folks from Pixar and apparently uh, some folks from um, The Onion. So they have a really good team <laughs> as well. Um, uh, I, I mean, honestly, I'll say right up front that I have profound respect for all these writing teams. And someday I hope, like when we all have quad canes and walkers, we're going to meet at some, some retirement home and we're going to be able to have a little bourbon in a shot glass and talk about the old times when we didn't know who the other team was. But boy, that was great that you did that because they're all just really doing fantastic work. Um, and Sounds knowing like you just wrote your retirement plan right there, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, I'm yeah. picturing, just start yeah, it's selling, not, start, start selling a, um, condos in your um, writing community commune <laughs> and that will be right. the retirement home of the future. Right. Retirement home for former chatbot writers. Yeah, if you build it's it, they will thing. come. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so uh, Deborah Harrison came onto the team, and she was working with August Nyhaus. And um, uh, she, the two of them came onto my, under my wing, and they taught me what I needed to know going in because I knew nothing. And it was the three of us that kind of prepared uh, this uh, agent, digital assistant, called Cortana for launch that following April. So I've been doing this for four years. That was 2014. And we started off with the with uh, the mission of making her funny because everybody thought that these chat bots were funny. And uh, we, we delivered on that, um, but it was a lot more complicated than that. And we quickly realized that. Um, so we really started to dig into the other part of our job, which was developing her personality. And then we hired more people, and, and on it goes. And now we're uh, 30, 30 people worldwide. Uh, that include, you know, all we're in 13 markets. So we have a writer in each market. Uh, we, we typically in tech, what we do is we do our work, and then we hand it off to a localization team, which translates it. But we knew that that wouldn't work because what we needed for this model of digital assistant was some an assistant that was culturally relevant uh, in a very personal way. So we knew that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't handle that with a team of, of, of folks that were sitting somewhere like here in Redmond or what have you. We wanted people that actually were living and breathing in the market. So that's the team that we, we built. Um, also, we expanded when we started working in bringing uh, a conversational, I call it a machine learning powered conversational AI. It's basically a chat bot uh, that we are uh, training. It's, it's, it's considered supervised machine, machine learning, and we are the supervisors. We are the ones that tell the, tell the bot that, yes, you're speaking like Cortana, or no, you're not speaking like Cortana, and we throw that back into the, the system, and it tries to learn from our, our uh, review of, of what it's, it's producing. And so we have a team of people that are that are doing that, and that that requires again. It requires you can't just have anybody signed up to do that. You have to understand language. You have to understand the nuance of language, and then also you have to understand on a deep level the character. So each person, even though they may not be writing per se, when they're doing this exercise of training this algorithm to speak like Cortana, they have to understand from a writer's perspective what is or isn't appropriate, what is or isn't intelligent, uh, what sounds uh, like it would come from Cortana, uh, these kinds of things. It really requires that kind of that kind of deep understanding. 
because we're talking about a conversational bot. There's plenty of other supervised uh, machine learning situations where um, you don't have this chat uh, component, and any you know a person with different expertise would then be the person that's training that particular algorithm. But since this is conversational, you need people that are experts in how in the way that people talk. So, in answer to the second part of your question, Jen, which was, what kind of writers do you go after? Uh, we as writers know that there's a spectrum of talent and expertise within writing. And, and so, like, tech is typically, uh, has been historically, it's changing a lot because we're really getting consumer focused. And we're trying to talk like human beings talk within our products and within our experiences and services. We're trying to create a written word and spoken word now uh, that sounds like human beings are talking. But in the old days, it was tech writers. The only people let through the gates of these tech companies were people that had been certified in tech writing. And a lot of that is like way beyond my capability. A lot of it has, the, you know, you have to be able to write code or, or at least understand how to write about code. And so it was a very different kind of writing. Um, and then there's also the other the other people that came in, of course, were from the marketing side, those that could write promotional materials about products and get people to buy or get people to click a button. But that model, though those people are talented and, and, and needed, necessary to, to the work, uh, didn't really fit what we're trying to do. We're trying to build this character. We're building out a personality, and we want it to speak like a human being. So So I started to look at focusing on people with uh, more artistic capabilities from the artistic side of the discipline. You know, uh, starting with screenwriters, playwrights, novelists, people that struggle to understand how people talk so that it sounds realistic, um, and then uh, going beyond that into other things such as we even had, we had a poet at one point in India, self-published poet, and then we had, we currently have a woman in Mexico City who uh, she's writing for the Mexican market, and she's published two children's books. Um, but the whole point is you have this kind of, this, this wonderful artistic uh, impulse around what we're doing, and an understanding, like I say, the practical side. What's interesting is the practical side of it was I wanted to find people that could, uh, uh, could convey uh, an experience or build an experience that sounded the way humans speak. And then there's this other side where you have to build a character, a believable character, uh, that we call it that Cortana's personality or you know, a bot's personality. But then what's interesting is there, what I discovered was that there's this other component there that um, we're really trying to connect with human beings because we're aligning with this idea that we're creating human-centric tech experiences, services, whatever. It's really about being being on the human terms as opposed to on text terms. Like in the, historically speaking, technology has just said, you know, this is this is an error code 67456G, good luck with that, you know. Whereas now, we, <laughs> right now we say like, oh, sorry, something went wrong. You know, that's the way someone in a store would talk. Right. Um, that's kind of one side of human centric, this human centric movement in technology. But one of the nice components of getting these artistic people is that, uh, like I always use the copywriter, the copywriter's success and, and, and they should be lauded for it is the ability to get people to do a thing, whether that's buy something or click a button or whatever. Very short, concise. Excellent writing that gets people to do something, right? That's not what we're interested in. What we're interested in when we're building out a personality in a very personal technological experience that we want people to trust, we have to we have to really focus on the humanness of that. And so what you have is like playwrights and screenwriters and novelists who've struggled for a long time. They're they're not doing it for the money. If they were doing it for the money, I tell them they should really look at another <laughs> career. <laughs> They're doing it because they want to connect to human beings. So you already have this mindset around the artistic side of our discipline where they're trying to connect with human beings in a personal way. 
they're trying to find some relatability, some universality too. Um, and so I found that that that's a big bonus. I stumbled across that. I didn't I didn't go in thinking that, but now I see that that's a, a big benefit. Awesome. Yeah. So you kind of touched on the next question I have for you uh, with my, Microsoft going more towards this more human approach to communicating to our users and especially with Cortana, trying to have a dialogue with the person rather than just having a robotic feeding of information. Um, you said that you started out trying the funny approach because everyone was trying to have that funny aspect because that's what the users thought they were seeking out. Um, so with that, what is Cortana's voice and how would you describe her personality? That's a great question and it's not easily answered because <laughs> I'm obviously steeped in it, so bear with me. <laughs> I might ramble on. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll say that what happened was we realized there were two things that happened. Uh, one was we realized that we were going to expand into these other markets and we had this all this knowledge of who Cortana was in our heads and we needed to get it on paper so that they could have a central centralized place, a kind of a Bible of who Cortana is and then they could apply that to their culture and make adjustments as necessary and that's the cool thing is we want we want a consistent experience of Cortana but mm -hmm. the Mexican Cortana is very different from the Japanese Cortana and very different right. from the, the British Cortana. So we so we just, we sat down and it took us a long time to, to hash out these principles that we write by. But the other thing that informed those principles was the idea that we began to really become concerned because we read the press and we, we're steeped in it of the kind of impact that our work was having. So it's not only building out a personality that is consistent and aligned with these kinds of values that we think are good for the product. But also we want to make sure that we're not doing any missteps uh, that are could possibly have a negative effect on people or the culture, but specifically people, individuals. And I'll, I'll explain what, why it's more important to think about individuals. Because if you think about things culturally, it's so it's such a broad brush stroke yeah. that you can easily marginalize people. So you have to think about it in the individual sense. Um, so who, how would I describe her personality? You know, if those two kinds of things uh, as starting point, um, we, we finally landed after many, many months and, and, and years, actually. If, now, it was months. We were months in by the time we landed on this. And it was it's actually based upon hearing user feedback. And so we positioned this as our North Star, and that is that Cortana is always positive always positive. And what we mean by that is not that she's chipper or happy-go-lucky or uh, Pollyannish. It just means that people walk away from the experience feeling good. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that we went, and let me, let me deviate for a moment to, to go towards uh, and probably another question, which is why did we even choose a personality? Well, there's, there's a lot of research, and uh, some of it is really the, the the pioneer of the research was a guy named Clifford Nass. Uh, he was a Stanford professor. Unfortunately, he passed away at a young age. Um, and he, 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 was, he was studying like sociological phenomenon, and he thought, I'll use a computer as a neutral point, right? So that, you know, because everybody responds to the computer in the same way, and there's nothing there. It's just, it's just a machine. And what he found was that, in fact, actually people responded in different ways to, to these machines, and it wasn't neutral. And what, they, what he realized was whether people realized it or not, in fact, people would deny it, they were having emotional response to interactions with the machine. And so then he started studying that. And he became, as I say, the pioneer. And, and the industry kind of acknowledges his, his expertise, his, his, his initial expertise in this idea that when people are at a computer or a device or some sort of experience that we would think is machine, a machine, there's emotions in play, and there's serious emotions. And he would say, you know, people walk away from this feeling good or bad. So we kind of focused on that, and that's the reason why you would want a personality as well, is because, well, there's other research that shows that people imbue stuff with personality, right? Mm. They, they give their cars names, or they, you know, think that 
they're some some little toy is really cute or whatever. They, they we we have a tendency to anthropomorphize uh, experiences, and there's benefit to that. There's a reason why humans do that. And technologically speaking, amongst many things, it can give people a sense of control. And if you think about the history of tech, part of the challenge, and it remains to this day, is that people don't feel like they're in control. A lot of people feel stupid and, and unintelligent and uh, uh, incapable when they approach their computers. And what the idea is with personality is that research has shown that that can change that emotional response and people can feel like they're in more control. Uh, I talk about it as, as a design affordance sometimes. Uh, like, uh, you know, I have, I carry an iPhone and it's a beautifully designed thing. Everybody knows that uh, Apple is really into industrial design, into product design and they're experts at it. And if you had a phone and I mean, Android phones, do the same thing. If you had a phone that had sharp edges and wasn't comfortable to hold in your hand, you wouldn't hold it in your hand. You wouldn't carry it with you. But I don't even like to put a case on my phone because it feels so good. Mm -hmm. So personality is a design affordance in that way. We could have a robotic uh, interchange with the uh, with the with the end user, but with personality, it adds this 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 feeling of familiarity and likability and. It just feels a lot more comfortable and attractive and fun. So people are more drawn into the experience. The experience doesn't feel so off-putting, intimidating, all these things. So it is, it's, it's, it's also uh, considered a design afford. So if you, so then going back, if we know these, these things are real based on research, then it's important to make sure that the experience, people walk away from the experience feeling good. So positive, Cortana is always positive is our North Star. But there's a lot of other things too. There's professional. Uh, there's uh, confident. There is uh, kind and sensitive, which is very interesting. How can a machine be kind and sensitive? Those are really emotional states that are very, very human, right? Right. It's kind of odd. We're kind of painting this experience so that people would presume that uh, that there's a sensitive entity on the other end. Um, but at the same time, one of our principles is that she's transparent. She's transparent about the fact that she's not human. That's very important to yeah. us. Um, uh, and all these things boil down to things that have to do, as I mentioned before, about an individual at the other end. So in other words, uh, we're, we're really clear on, you know, you could ask Cortana something and, uh, you know, she might say, I'd, I'd raise my hand if I had hands, <laughs> right? Which is funny right. to those of us that have hands. But there's people out there, a lot of people, that don't have hands or don't have arms. And so we would never want to be responsible for any hurtful feelings or anything that. So we just cross that off the list. And that's where Cortana is sensitive. She's aware that there's a sensitive need. Um, and that, when I say she and I speak about it, that really is the character that we're, we're trying to build. Like she has this knowledge of, of what's on the other end of that. And uh, so sensitivity becomes what that's about. Sensitive to the fact that she could very easily marginalize people and accidentally do it. People don't intentionally uh, hurt people most of the time. Sometimes they do, of course. But a lot of times it's accidental and we don't, we don't want to make that mistake. So we're very, very clear that She's sensitive and, and kind. And, and of course, the product side, she's helpful and helps you make, uh, get, get stuff done. So those are some of the things. There's, there's a lot of intricacies in there. She's fun. You know, we have a whole set of principles around her humor, and that changes from market to market. But uh, those are some of those are a handful of uh, the ideas behind who Cortana is. Yeah, I love that. Really. You actually touched on a few things that we've talked about already on the pod with uh, just Microsoft Voice Principles all up and how we um, talk with our partners in engineering about the, the why this is of value. And uh, kind of a quote that I probably overuse <laughs> when talking <laughs> to people is uh, Maya Angelou. Um, that's just not, it's not what you hmm. say that people remember, it's how you say it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's that kind of, that the divide between the scientific logical brain and like what you were saying before with the artist, um, the artist 
delivery of, um, you know, the feelings and, and emotions behind it that it might not necessarily map to logic. And that's, you know, sometimes scientists and artists don't have an ability to talk to each other because of this clear division on, on what they value. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also reminds me of last summer I was reading this book about um, – the you know uh, Darwin's survival of the fittest and, and evolutionary scientists nowadays are actually hypothesizing that it's not our uh, fittest that helped humanity survive. It is really survival of the kindest. And it's our tribalism and our sharing of information and, and, and our being good to people, to each other, that has actually elevated humanity. Um, so all of these things that you're talking about in relation to AI and, and I think are just like fundamental human uh, elements. And it's interesting to see how it plays out uh, in this talk about technology. I agree agree completely. Yeah. So we kind of got into the who Cortana is, which was great background. I'm wondering, uh, let's kind of loop back to that artist's way. You have a background in screenwriting. So when you're talking about personality, how much like were there tips and tricks from your screenwriting days that helped you in developing this character, like help you form the personality? Maybe you can share for other writers out there some of these uh, tricks and tips and tricks on character building. Um, yeah, for all you writers listening that want tips or tricks, I'm sorry I'm going to disappoint. <laughs> there are no <laughs> tips or tricks. What I love that is, answer. What there is, what there is, is uh, you know, dedicated effort into believing that when you're writing that there's some good that's coming of it whether it's personal or your you know it's definitely personal let's just focus on that because a lot of writing never sees an audience uh hopefully it does uh even if it's one person or one million people uh you know that has its whole conversation but what it does to us as individuals is really what i believe is important why a lot of us choose to be uh, creative people in artistic ways. Like, I, I believe that creativity, every human being is creative, right? I mean, whether you're, you're painting your bathroom or what have you. And, and people take it ser- more seriously than others. Some people get into it more. Some people are sloppy and don't really care if the lines are, are messy. And other people think, oh, gosh, I, I'm going to have to redo that section around the toilet because I know I'm going to be staring at it every day. You know, there's different kinds of ways that we're creative and the way that we approach it. But when we start talking about why people write and why people paint and why people write music, it's very different. And uh, I think a lot of that is that personal journey, you know. So not to get too far down that path, but I think it's good and it kind of resonates with uh, this idea of people connecting with other human beings because you're trying to grow personally and express that. Um, so I would say, really, it's important to the work that we do creatively. This screen, the screenwriting that I've done, has given me perspective into a lot of things. It's given me a lot of practice writing dialogue that doesn't sound clunky, and you just kind of get better at it, right? It's a it's a skill that you have to hone, um, and and then developing a personality, same kind of thing. You get you get into this mode where you get very imaginative, and then you 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 get you have to edit that down. Like I say, like the hands thing, right? Imaginative. Oh, but I don't want to say something that might hurt someone's feelings. So okay, we'll pull back from that. That's how you know you get good at that if you if you're rigorous in practice. So I think it's really the tip would be uh, to writers uh, write write every day and write with with passion and fervor. And then you can bring that skill, that those skills that you develop in that space to your work um, here. And fortunately, I mean, I, I've, ever since I worked in Office, I worked in Office, then I went to Xbox, and now I'm on Cortana and Windows. Um, I've always thought of the work as creative. There's writers that disagree, but uh, I think I've always been passionately clear that what we're doing, whether we're writing help articles or what, uh, is creative and requires a different mindset. So whether you're going to be writing for bots or going to be uh, 
you know, using, let's say, using uh, a tech job as your day job while you do your, your poetry or your more artistic expression at night, um, I would say that the two feed on, or the two assist uh, each other. You know, the, the, the work that you do here uh, helps with the, the, create, the much more artistic uh, stuff that we might be doing um, and vice versa. Uh, so, sorry I don't have any tips or tricks. Just get out there and write, right? But it's great, like you well, were saying, the dialogue side of things. Um, one tip that I was given when it came to writing dialogue was mm -hmm. start out writing in your own voice. How would you respond to this question? And you write it out that way. And then from there, you can start to bring in someone else's voice. And that's how you really build characters that aren't just um, shadows of yourself, but like you're taking your you because you know you and you know how you sound and you use that voice. And then from there, you slowly pull in from other people or other styles of writing, which actually has been how I have adapted my writing to fit into the Microsoft voice was just by reading what's out there in the other products and then trying to keep a little bit of myself into everything, but still like finding ways to, to uh, develop that voice and, Anyway, so yeah. No, no that's so that's, so that that's so valid. That's so valid, Amy, because because when we when we step aside from this Cortana and bot writing and we talk about just the voice and tone work that we do, that I think you guys talk a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, the, the interesting thing that I find being somebody that's kind of running a team and saying use these voice principles is it's not like you're snapping to like the way like a brand like writing for a brand. We have a lot more flexibility as writers here to, to bring our own little flavor as long as it fulfills the principles and doesn't doesn't sound yes. too out there, right? I mean, yes. sounding too out there would be against the principles, right? So <laughs> so there is some alignment, but there's a lot of, I think, I'll see something, I'll go, yep, that was so-and-so's writing. I recognize it from a mile away, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's fun or it's it's very clever. It, or, or it's to the point, you know, everybody has their strong suits and you can bring your own flavor to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would challenge you, Jonathan, and say, actually going back to that, this wasn't a tip to writers about your screenwriting. <laughs> <laughs> your, your tip actually hugged in there was uh, perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. With, with your own development, right? It's all about practice. Yeah. You, see, you know, every great... Uh, skill requires a lot of practice. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But sometimes people ask me this question, too, like, okay, you were a, a, you're a storyteller. What kind of, uh, you know, all your skill in creating the first act and that dreadful second act, what, what, what are you, what, what, do you, what do you, how does that apply? And I go, you know, it really doesn't. <laughs> that part of storytelling does not directly apply to this work. Uh, you know, you can, I think flows, we understand uh, as a flow, and that could be more like scene work, right? How a scene would work. But an actual yeah. story is a bigger thing that I, at least I haven't seen how the, the, the work necessary in those areas uh, directly apply. Uh, you, can, you can look at it at a high level, like I've seen some stuff from Pixar on storytelling and how they apply that to what we're doing. And, you know, that, that high level kind of, uh, guidance, you can apply it to anything. You can apply it to washing the dishes, for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> in my opinion, I mean, it's valuable. I love it. But it's so high level that it really doesn't, doesn't Is that the help. story arc of, oh, I dropped that dish? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, I'm going to move over towards the rag pile. <laughs> oh, I stepped on something. i got to figure out what that is. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a very fun thing to wash dishes in my home. <laughs> oh, it sounds amazing. I, yeah. I just uh, show that job out to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can run a workshop. That. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll have a workshop for them and other kids, you know, how, how to create, bring these Pixar storytelling principles to dishwashing. I think that, that'd be, I can make a lot of money doing that, actually. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, I bet you can. To build towards that <laughs> retirement commune. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or bring it to retirees. How's that? Yes. Yeah. 
Well, awesome. Save so, that one again for your commune. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you've, we've, I feel like we've locked down on this personality of Cortana and, um, informing you on how to respond to the questions that are given to her. But how do you know what questions people are asking Cortana? And I know that you had briefly mentioned that your team doesn't write every response. You've created this um, this framework for that um, that takes some of that load off of your team. But can you dig into how how what informs you, the questions you decide to answer? Sure. And first, I want to I want to be completely transparent and say, even though we're training this uh, algorithm to, to to shoulder some of the burden of the conversational side of the experience, uh, it's in its nascent form. And mm -hmm. so it's you know, we have it kind of it, it's a little bit of a wild card still. I mean, as you can imagine, most machine learning experiences are they're getting really smart, but it's like baby steps. So yeah. it's not a really significant part of the experience at this point. So authoring is, is very required for what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, how we get the responses is it's data. You know, we, we, we have a team of people that basically uh, created some cool tech that basically says this is not people aren't looking for search results. They're looking for they're asking Cortana something. So, you know, it's it's really a subtle difference between uh, how do I uh, how do I drive a car to do you drive a car Cortana <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, or do you drive a car um, and so they look at do you drive a car and they're like oh that they're they're actually asking Cortana something. So then that all gets bucketed. Um, and they send that over to us, and we have a, a guy on my team who basically looks at all that. We call it data. It's utterances that people have said or typed into their experience. It's, it goes into the cloud as data. You can choose not to let that happen, um, but those that do, uh, then we take that as data, and then we group it up, and we prioritize and say, wow, a lot of people are saying, do you drive a car? And then we'll say, okay, let's bring that to our editorial meeting, and we'll look at it, and we'll will come up with responses like drive a car well we can't say we don't have any hands so what are we going to say you know we do that kind of that kind of thing um, we don't know who those people are we don't know that they, uh, there's some uh, I guess there's some understanding that there's like record that we're listening to recorded audio that's not true either it's just raw data we know nothing that's the challenge is we don't know who's on the other end of it because it could be uh, 18-year-old gamer or it could be a 72-year-old mm -hmm. grandma asking the very same thing, do you drive a car? And we don't know. So we can't, like, we can't segment, to use a marketing term, our responses to any particular uh, kind of profile or, or uh, uh, segment, I guess, demographic, right? Um, we, we, we can get there, you know, when, it, when it's time, and we'll be able to start being more pinpointing with that data. But in the meantime, we're, we're pretty much doing this broadcast experience where we don't know who's on the other end. We just know that they've said it. And the interesting thing creatively about that point is that, in essence, when we create this character, when we're creating this personality, it's the work is invoked. It's all reactive. So, so we're seeing what people are saying, and then we choose to respond to it based on priority. But they're the ones that are asking the questions. And by virtue of asking the questions, they're requiring us to create a response that aligns with the personality. So in a very interesting way, the user base, the customer, is helping to create the personality just based on what they're asking intuitively of this, this bot, which is something that I kind of like. We don't know who they are. You know, it's totally anonymous. But they're helping create the, the character as we go along. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm wondering kind of more about maybe some of the unsavory questions people ask. And I guess maybe I'm thinking back to that whole kerfuffle last year with the Tay AI release where hackers trained her to be uh, racist. Uh, mm. How does your team handle the ethical implications of introducing an AI into their lives? Like how yes. do you go about answering those questions asked of her? It's great. It's a great Thank question you. because we, we, um, we would say it's the best part of our job because it's the most challenging. And again, what I realized was once I sat around with people who were worried about being sensitive, then 
I realized we had the right people to respond in a in a in a in a uh, appropriate way to all the ugliness that people say because we see that too. We see the fun and chipper things and the thank yous and I love you and all that stuff. But we also see incredible abuse, racism, sexism, everything. We see we see, because because this is an anonymous you know arrangement. And there's nothing new about the anonymity, the mask of anonymity and what it does to people. We see that ugliness all the time with trolls and with all kinds of nasty stuff that's going on on the edge of the edge of the Internet. Um, we see it, too. And uh, so we have to deal with it. We have to respond in, in, in ways. And that's where the principal work that we do. We meet. Incidentally, we meet every week for an hour just to deal with the tougher questions and how we're going to approach it from a principal level. Um, that's where the work gets really interesting. Um, and and what we've what we found is like there's a lot of things that we'd rather avoid. But if we if we don't respond, that non response is a response. So you're on the hook, right? I mean, it's like the silent yeah. treatment. Right? I wonder why she didn't have a response there. Wow, that sounded like an endorsement of my hatred speech, right? Yeah. You have to be super careful. And then you have to split it out. Like, well, you, they could say this, but if they say that, it's a different way of saying it. We have to respond in a different way, right? But at the same time, we, we, we have, like, for example, if you say something really ugly, abusive, and gender-coded to, to Cortana, Early on, I was like, we got to hammer back. We got to tell them we're not going to take that, man. That's, that's BS. And then cooler minds, either Deborah or August, <laughs> said, <laughs> you know, I don't think we're, we should get in the shaming business. And it was like, of course, we can't shame people. We can't tell people how they can or cannot talk. But at the same time, we never want to be a tool uh, to, that perpetuates bad behavior. There's a very fine line there. But, but it's an important one to keep your eyes crisp on, is we can't tell people what they can say and what they can't say, but we can tell them we don't want to be a tool for their bad behavior. And so what we were doing then was we were coming up with kind of a bunch of snarky responses, which is not typical. But we thought if they're going dark, we're going to go dark back. And then another cool mind on our team, uh, Ron Owens, who's the head of our programming, he said, you know, we shouldn't do that. We, we shouldn't create a game around this because we don't want people going to cocktail parties and saying hideous things to Cortana just so that they can see our clever responses or our varied responses. So we have very succinct, firm responses that basically hopefully indicate the fact that we're not going to go there. And it's just our side. It's not judgmental. Of, of who they are or what they're where they're coming from because again we don't know it could be an actual person with very serious anger and hatred problems or it could be some kid that's just trying it out just to see what's on the other end of it um, but then fundamentally we just we can't get Microsoft cannot get in the business of telling people how they can or cannot speak but we certainly have a right to protect our experiences from ugliness so that's great and good to hear yeah all right. Uh, so it's your Cortana is a dialogue experience, and does the spoken word aspect of it versus a written form does that change the way you approach writing for your for Cortana? It, it can. In fact, we give a lot of consideration into that very thing. In fact, it was the reverse. It was like when we when we started on on mobile device, uh, it was a real audio experience like people were doing it they were using their voice and we have a principle that if you use your voice then she can respond with an audio response if you type in your response then she will respond with with a written response the responses are the same typically sometimes we we, we have fun with having her say one thing and then the written word has some little subtle difference so if you're paying attention to both there's another joke that's happening um, but that's very rare. It's usually it usually mirrors the experience. But what we found was when we went to PC, people were typing more. So rather than hearing the way that it was coming out, which gives a flavor to what's written, uh, they were they were just reading it. And a lot of our responses sounded awful. 
or felt, mm. I should say, felt awful, not sounded because they weren't hearing it. They were reading it and they felt terrible. So we had to do this big scrub of all our content to, to review this, to say, does this, if you were just to read this, would this look bad, uh, feel bad? And so we did that. And then recently we launched the Invoke, the Harmon Carden Invoke, which Cortana is resident in. And now we have no visual component. And that changed a lot of the work that we did as well. Uh, now we have to be very careful in the areas where we call it fallback, where we don't really understand what they're saying because people can say anything. It's just too hard to track. And we're getting smarter about that with every day. But it's hard to understand what people are saying a lot of the time uh, to make sense of it. I mean, we as humans have that problem, right? Somebody will say something, you say, could, could you say that a different way kind of thing? Um, so uh, we have a, a, a broad, we call it fallback. I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand that. And we, we've been really creative in trying to write conversationally. We call that disambiguation. If we don't understand what they're saying, we try to give them another chance. Could you say that a different way? And hopefully they'll say it in a way that our AI recognizes it and says, oh, that's this. And then they'll, they'll pop a response to that. So it's, it's, it's not really been a, as much of a creative change other than the one that I was saying we had to really look at the written word and see mm -hmm. that it didn't feel bad. But it's also a, just a structural change, how we're approaching the work from more of a structural sense, which is writing work. Don't get me wrong. It's just not really the, the, the flavor of the language doesn't change. Uh, let's talk about the lighter side of things. Um, beyond the dark ethical concerns, what about the, what's the funniest question that Cortana has been asked, and how did you answer it? You know, actually, <laughs> you guys are going to kill me. The funniest question, I can't reply, or I can't, I can't disclose here because it's, <laughs> it's not appropriate for audiences here. <laughs> I mean, really, I, guess I, I, should I can't. Have, uh, amended that PG rated. Yeah, I don't because the PG ones aren't the funniest. We just forget them. You know, the ones that stand yeah. out, or you wouldn't believe that somebody actually said blankety blank, blank blank, bleepity bleep. You know, and and, and, that, and that's so. I will leave it at that. Um, and what okay. we said to that was one of some. Here, here's one that actually uh, that I know works because I did it in a demo recently, um, which is fun, and it shows the fun side, is uh, we have this nebulous, uh, like, neutral category where you say, I like a thing, right? And we know that they're not saying, I like something negative, right, or I like something ugly. And we also know this it's not super light, like, I like living, you know, where we'd have a real positive response to that. So it's neutral, and we want to meet neutral with neutrality. And, and so one of the queries that works in this particular scenario is, I like to wear tight pants. <laughs> and Cortana replies, do you now? <laughs> <laughs> and in the demo, I said, yes, I do. <laughs> At the time, I wasn't wearing my tight pants. That's so disclosed, just, just, just so everybody knows. They were properly that's right. Yeah. But that the real kind of gems the we answer to one of those TMIs. That's right. And 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 or just the neutral ones that are silly, you know, that that could be I like I like cheese and she'd probably say the same thing, right? But I just like the tight the tight pants work there because it's yeah. rather embarrassing for me to say so in front of a yeah. large audience. Hey Satya, let me tell you this. <laughs> yeah. Here's one you could use at the next build conference, Satya. Hey. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, it is time for our final question then. Jonathan, uh, Jen and I would like to know, do you have a crush on Cortana? You know, that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to say. Maybe stay. giving too much personality to the AI. Yeah. No, but I'll tell you who I, I'll tell you who I do have a crush. Work relationships. I have a crush. <laughs> I, I have a, uh, a work crush or a creative crush on the men and women, the women and men that I work with on the project because their minds are just on fire and they're crackling at all times and they come up with so many funny things and responding to these blankety blank bleep 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 <laughs> responses with, you know, like, the, 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 you know, with humor 
because we have to be in that space and and just working with the folks that that I'd have to say w perhaps I have a crush on the work perhaps I but but more seriously the creative minds behind it I just I just marvel at them and uh, don't want them to ever go away just kind of like a that's a, I guess that's a good way to describe a crush right you have a crush yeah. you see see someone you're, you're you know junior high and you have this crush on someone and you just never want them to go away <laughs> so that's how I feel about the people totally that totally get with. it yeah yeah <laughs> well thanks again for joining us today Jonathan and for sharing with us a glimpse into what it's like being a writer for AI you bet thank you yeah, this thank was you so fantastic much. okay if you like the show don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes your review will help others find us you can also head to our blog wordsworkpodcast.com to leave us comments for this episode. Thanks for tuning in.